Well, good morning, Freedom. Man, it's great to see you guys here this morning. It's great to have you joining us online. And uh, if you're new to Freedom, my name's Eric. I'm the lead pastor here. And we're in the middle of a series on the book of Philippians. And we've been looking at the church at Philippi and walking through this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church, to the Christians that lived in the city of Philippi. And we've been walking through this book chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And so we're going to continue that this morning. But here's the question I want to ask you. Have you ever noticed that things that you once valued no longer have value? Like over time, things begin to lose value. Things that we used to think were shiny and bright are now kind of dull. Things we used to think were important are now unimportant. Things that we used to think had tremendous value now no longer have value for us. Anybody experience that? Let me, let me just... Um, let me just help you out a little bit. How about this? How many of you used to have one of these? A Sony Walkman. Like you used to have, I mean, this thing was amazing. For those of you who are students, this thing was incredible. You could literally carry your music anywhere you went. Revolutionary. Now you had to carry a cassette tape, and that thing, that monster right there, would eat your cassette tape and ruin your entire life. But the fact that we could carry our music with us with those soft, squishy, puffy earphones was amazing. But now, has no value, does it? Like, who's gonna, who has a cassette tape anymore? We get to carry our music on our phones. We don't have to have a uh, Sony Walkman anymore. Okay, so what about this? How many of you valued back in the 80s? This hairstyle. Business in the front, party in the back, baby. Come on. How many of you had the mullet? Yeah, quite a few of us had the mullet when we were growing up. Bring back the mullet. Robert, you just wish they'd bring back hair, man. So we want the mullet back. No, we don't. What happens if you see somebody with a mullet now? You make fun of them, right? <laughs> no, you don't make fun of That's not the Christian thing to do. <laughs> but neither is that the hairstyle you should have. And so, um, no, okay, so let's, let's move on beyond mullets and things. How many of you at one point thought this was the coolest thing you could have? Like you could be Zach on Saved by the Bell with this bad boy. You were cool beyond cool to have this. For those of you who don't know this, this is a cell phone. Yeah, this is an actual cell phone. And uh, this is what we used to have to carry around in order to call. And we put it in a bag because it weighed so much and was so heavy. But things got better, right? Things got better. Eventually, they came out with the Nokia brick phone. Now, this thing is called a brick phone. And it had, I mean, this was the, you wanted this thing. You could get it. Uh, when I first started on Singular uh, Wireless for a penny. Now, you were locked into an 18-year contract, but you got this phone for a penny. Now, this thing, you could throw it at a wall, and it would go through the wall. It was a brick phone. I used to use mine as a hammer. Every time I was needing to hammer something, just you could use this thing as a hammer. But this was the bomb, man. Now, this is the originator of the butt dial. Why? Because you would put this thing in your back pocket, 
and you would sit down because it was a brick. It didn't matter. You couldn't crush it. But the problem was you would dial people because the way you used to dial people, you could have people in your, uh, in your contacts. To get to them fast, you just held down their number, and it would automatically dial them. Now, this had a lot of value, didn't it? Now, who wants a brick phone? Nobody. Nobody. But then, then things got better. You could no longer butt dial with the flip phone. As a matter of fact, you could clip it to your side and look really cool. This is what you could do. You could be, man, you could be styling with the flip phone. And uh, you were high tech and you could, uh, you know, you could make some power deals with the flip phone. Everybody wanted the flip phone. Had tremendous value. Now, nobody wants a flip phone. Well, some people may, but, you know, but then, oh, then. Man, it was so, I mean, I, I thought I had arrived when I was able to get one of these, the BlackBerry. I mean, I thought that I had made it in life when I got a BlackBerry. Now, the screen was the size of a nickel, but you could type. Like, you didn't have to hit the button three times to get an M. You could literally just start typing, and you could type away, you could text people, and you could send messages to people you could now the first one i got i didn't i was too cheap to get the uh the data connection plan so i had to type the email plug it into my computer later on at night and then it would send the email but that but this thing had value now they're va they're worthless nobody has a blackberry anymore what do we all carry around a small computer in our pockets that does all these things you can listen to your music you can text, you can send email, you can do everything. Why? Because these things, the, those things no longer have value, but they used to. But there are other things in life, some common things, that are basically worthless until someone famous owns them. Think about this, Napoleon's toothbrush. What would you give to have Napoleon's bacteria-ridden toothbrush. How about $21,000 is what it sold for auction? Winston Churchill's false teeth. Everybody's longing for that, Hannah, right? You want Winston Churchill's false teeth? Twenty grand, you could have them at auction. It's disgusting. Nobody wants anybody's false teeth, but yet people are buying them. JFK's boxer briefs. Sold for $5,000 in auction. Why? Because someone famous wore them. Hopefully they were clean before they bought them, but that we don't know. Now, we'll get a little bit more modern. Justin Timberlake. JT, baby. He was at a restaurant a couple of years ago, and he was eating breakfast. And someone else in that restaurant saw him eat breakfast and realized that he did not finish his toast. He left some toast on the plate. And so this person, being an entrepreneur, went over before they could bust the table and grabbed said piece of toast, put it on eBay, and it sold for $1,025, a partially eaten piece of toast. Why? Because JT had eaten it. Now, J.K. Rollins, who wrote the Harry Potter series of books, uh, wrote these books in an old wooden 
dining room chair, one that you would find at your great-grandparents' house. And she sat in that chair and she wrote the books. And that chair, wooden chair, sold for $394,000. Why? Because someone famous had sat in the chair. Now, why do I say all that? Because last week we started looking at the Apostle Paul and we realized that the Apostle Paul had some things that he once valued. Some things that he thought had tremendous value. They were important to him. They were significant to him. They gave him confidence, in fact, is what he said, because of these things. And these things weren't toys or trinkets or old toothbrushes. No, these were religious achievements. These were things that had made the Apostle Paul become a superstar in Judaism. And these were the things that he lists. And in fact, he lists them, we're going to read them again, in Philippians 3, beginning in verse, uh, verse, verse 5, or verse 4, rather. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And here's why he has confidence. Here are the things that he says he values. That he was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I'm a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I am blameless. So what is Paul saying? He's saying all of these things I used to value. All of these things were shiny. All of these things were important. All of these things had value. Now all of those things are dull, unimportant and valueless they're worthless because look what he says next in verse 7 he says but whatever gain i had i count as loss for the sake of christ whatever gain those things had given me i count as lost for the sake of christ now you got to understand paul is using this language of, of banking and he's using this language he said on one side I've got all of my credits in my account and the other side I have all of my debits in my account and what I used to value those religious activities those hair my, my Jewish heritage all of those things I valued and they were in the credit column and he says now I'm taking all of those things whatever I had gained and I'm taking them and I'm putting them in the debit column I'm considering them as a loss why for the sake of Christ. He's saying, I'm taking Jesus and only Jesus and putting him in the credit column. That's what Paul's telling us. This, this, this banking language we're saying, only Jesus is in the credit column. All those other things. But then he doesn't stop there. He actually gets a little bit more aggressive. He gets a little bit more uh, vehement in, his, in, his, in this discussion. Look at verse 8. He says, indeed... I count everything as loss because of, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And so, so listen, he, got, he moves from his religious things, these heritage things his nationality things to now he says i consider everything as loss does anybody know what that means in the greek everything 
everything. It means literally everything. I consider it all loss. So all those things we put in the, in the credit columns, Paul says, look, all of those are loss as well. I consider all of them lost. In fact, he goes on to say, I have lost everything. I don't just consider them lost, I've actually lost them. I've lost prestige, I've lost relationships, I've lost everything. He's lost his freedom, he's in jail right now. I've lost everything for the sake of Christ. And he calls those things rubbish, which in the, in the uh, King James Version, they actually call it dung. And so Paul is literally saying, and this is the way that the church in Philippi would have read this when he said, because he uses the word for human or animal excrement. And it's, it's pretty crass and it's pretty vulgar when he, the way he says it, and they would have read it that way. But here's basically what he's saying. He says, everything in life apart from Jesus Christ is worthless. It is like a big pile of dog crap. That's what he's saying. Paul is saying everything in life is a big pile of crap compared to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That, Paul is he's using these words and he's saying, listen, you can have all of your prestige, you can have all of your possessions, you can have all of your stuff, you can have your relationships, all those things, because all those things I count in the loss column. Or you can have Jesus. And all of those things that we consider as gain are crap compared to Jesus. That's exactly what he's saying. Sounds very familiar to the question that Jesus once asked in Matthew. I believe it was 16, where he said, what does it profit a man? What gain do you have if you gain the whole world? All the popularity, all the fame, all the riches, all the stuff of this world, and yet lose your very soul. Paul's saying the same thing. Listen, all the things that this life has to offer, all the things that we chase after so hard and so much, every bit of it is worthless. It is a pile of crap compared to knowing Christ Jesus. But then thankfully what Paul does, he says, listen, I know that Jesus is infinitely better than anything this world has to offer. But then he goes and shows us why. Because I always like the why, right? I don't know about you, but I want to know why. And if you have kids, you know, they're always asking why. Why, why, why? Well, Paul tells us the why. He says, here's why Jesus is better. Here's why Jesus is the only thing in my credit column. Here's why Jesus is far superior than everything else. Look at verse 9, and he says this. I mean, uh, in, uh, in verse 8, again. Indeed, I count everything a loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, let's stop right there. The first thing that Paul tells us is that we can personally know Christ. We can personally know Jesus. We can know him intimately. We can know him personally. In fact, the, the thought and the idea that of us knowing Christ is really what the Christian life is all about. 
It's what identifies us as Christ's followers, that we can know him and know him personally and intimately. Jesus put it this way. He said, I am the great shepherd and my sheep know me. They know my name. They know who I am. When I call them, they hear me. They, they listen. And, and Jesus also said that this, this is eternal life. That you may know the one true God and his son, Christ Jesus, whom he sent. That is the goal of eternal life, that we would know Christ. The apostle John said it this way. In 1 John 5, 20, he said, And we know that the Son of God came, and he's given us understanding. And here's why he says, here's the reason Jesus came, so that we can know the true God. See, knowing Christ is the Christian life. Knowing Christ is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. But here's the problem. The problem is this, that many of us know Jesus like we know our mailman. We may know some attributes about him. We may be able to describe him. We may even know some doctrine and truths, but we don't really know him. We see him every day. We come to church on Sundays, but we don't truly know him. You see, Paul, when he says that we would know Christ, he's not talking about intellectual knowledge. He's not talking about theological knowledge. What Paul is talking about is this word gnosko, which means an intimate, personal knowledge. Just like you and I know our spouse if we're married. Just like we know our friends. Just like we know our family members. Paul is talking about a personal, intimate knowledge of Christ. But then he goes, listen, not only that, this is their surpassing worth when it comes to knowing Christ. Knowing Jesus is about a surpassing worth. It is infinitely valuable. Why? Because it comes from Jesus. Because we can know Jesus. But then I want you to notice. I want you to notice how he refers to Jesus. He says this. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He doesn't say our Lord. He doesn't say the Lord. He doesn't say the man upstairs. He doesn't say anything like that. What does he say? He says, my Lord. He's saying, Jesus is mine. Jesus is my Lord. That's intimacy. That's personal. That's real and raw. And he's saying, listen, Jesus is my Lord, my personal Lord. And he can be your personal Lord because you too can know him. But then not only that, Paul moves on. He says the first thing is we can know Christ. The second thing is that we are in Christ. Listen to what he says in verse 9. And being found in him. See, you and I as Christians are described as people who are in Christ. Paul called this the great mystery of God's redemptive plan. The great mystery of God's redemptive plan is that you and I are now in Christ. Our position is in 
Jesus Christ. In fact, the New Testament says over 87 times that you and I are in Christ. What does that mean? That means that the life we now live, we're no longer living, but Christ is living within us. He is Emmanuel, God with us, but not only that, he's also God in us. Here's the way Paul described it to the church in Galatia. He says, I am crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who gave himself, who loved me, and gave himself for me. So here's what he's saying. He's saying you and I are in Christ. That we, that Christ dwells within us. And just to get, to get, get practical just for a moment, and kind of really kind of get where the rubber meets the road on this, it means that when God looks at you, when God looks at you, and when God looks at you, and when God looks at you, if you're a follower of Christ, who he sees is his son. He doesn't see your imperfections. He doesn't see your sinfulness. He doesn't see your depravity. What he sees is his son. Why? Because we are in Christ. Let me illustrate it this way. Many of you this morning when you drove in, to the parking lot. I've known you for a while, so I know your cars, and I know what it looks like. And I say, oh, look, here come the Alexanders. I see their car pulling in. I don't really see you, though, right? I'm not seeing you. What am I seeing? Your car. But here's what I know. I know that you are in the car, right? Remember those days when you could used to go to the terminal and uh, watch somebody fly to another city in an airplane? There used to be a day you could do that. You could actually walk with them all the way up to the gate. You could say your goodbyes and stand at the window and wave at them as they flew. As you stood there and waved at them as they flew away, you were saying, oh, I see them. Oh, what are you seeing? The plane. But you know they're what? In there. They're in the plane. You can't see the plane. What do you see? I mean, you can't see them, but you can see the plane. That's the same idea of us being in Christ. That God, when he looks at us, sees us. Let me, let me take it a step further. None of you can go out today and just by yourself go 60 miles an hour. But you can in your car. None of you can walk out of this building, jump, and go 550 miles an hour in the sky. But in a plane, you can. None of us can get to heaven by ourselves. But in Christ, we can. See, that's the importance of the fact that you and I are in Christ. But it, Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on. Look at verse, eight, uh, verse 9 again. And being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So Paul is saying not only are we in Christ, but we've been given the righteousness of Christ. You and I have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul had spent his entire adult life up until this point on the Damascus Road where he met Jesus. He had spent his entire adult life 
striving and pushing and trying to earn favor with God. Trying to do anything he possibly could to be right with God. He tried religion. He tried the law. He, tried it. he leaned on his own heritage as an Israelite. But Paul realized that only the righteous inherit heaven. But he also knew from the Old Testament, which he was an expert, that none of us are righteous. That even our best righteous acts are like filthy rags before a holy God. And so Paul understood the moment he met Jesus that true righteousness cannot be produced. True righteousness has to be provided. True righteousness, biblical righteousness, godly righteousness cannot be produced. You and I can't go and manufacture it. We can't go and work for it. But true biblical righteousness has to be provided. We need another source of righteousness. And Scripture says that that source of our righteousness is Jesus Himself. That we are given His righteousness. And that is why the gospel is such good news. Listen to what Paul said to the church in Corinth. It said that God made Him who knew no sin, to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. You see, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to die on the cross so that we could exchange our sin for His righteousness. That's an incredible exchange, isn't it? That is a great exchange. Jesus, who's perfect, Jesus who never sinned, and me who is imperfect, who sins a lot, I get to exchange my sin for His righteousness. I get to exchange my depravity for His goodness. I get to exchange all of that. And so biblical righteousness is this. It is when God takes Jesus Christ's perfect record and superimposes it on my imperfect life. And He does the same thing for you. He takes Jesus' righteousness and superimposes it on your sinfulness, on your imperfections. And this works because you and I are in Christ. So when God sees us, He doesn't see our sin, He sees His Son. So Paul says, man, this is great news. We have been justified before God. Now, justification is one of those big church words that we often define as just as if I've never sinned. Anybody heard that definition? Raise your hand in your living room if you've heard that definition. Yeah, you've heard it. Just as if I've never sinned. But here's the problem. That falls short of what justification actually is. It's not just as, if, just as if I've never sinned. It's just as if I've always obeyed. See, we don't go from negative to neutral. We go from negative to positive. We go from our sinfulness to Christ's righteousness. That's what justification means. But here's, the, here's my concern. 
My concern is this, that far too many people, far too many that claim to be Christians, that say they're a follower of Jesus, they, they come to church week in and week out, they show up online and you're watching week in and week out, and yet you leave the service and you sp- spend the rest of the week trying your best to earn righteousness before God. Trying your best and striving your best to, to, to earn your own righteousness or to walk and trust in your own goodness. And so often I even find myself trusting in my own goodness. And yet I realize more and more that every time I do that, that is an insult to God. You see, when I trust in my human goodness as a substitute for Christ righteousness what i'm saying to god and what you're saying to god is this that god i know that jesus died on the cross for my sins i know that on the cross he said it is finished i know that he resurrected and and rose again three days later and he sits at the right hand of the father right right now at this very moment but what he did is not enough Let me add a little bit of my goodness to help you out, God. Let me add a little bit of my goodness to to kind of get us over that hump. Oh, see, God, that is such an insult to God's plan of redemption. See, we can't go and have our own goodness and our own righteousness. We need Christ's righteousness. We need His righteousness, not our own. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on, verse 10 that I may know him. Now, again, he's talking about knowing him. You say, well, he's already talked about knowing him. Really, what Paul is saying here is, I want to know him even more. I want to know him even more. And I want to know the power of his resurrection. And I want to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. See, Paul's saying, I want to know God more and more. I want to know Christ more and more. Paul never bored of of knowing Christ. He never got bored with Jesus. He never said, I've got enough of God. He never said, you know what, I don't want to be too much of a fanatic. I'm just going to dial it back a little bit. No, the normal thing for Paul and the normal thing for you and I is to walk in intimate, deep fellowship with Christ. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, I want to know him more. I want to know him more and more. I want to walk in fellowship with God more and more and more. You know, I often read the words of, of people in the Old Testament. People like King David in Psalm 63, who King David had a deep passion for knowing God. He had a deep passion for walking intimately with God. In fact, in Psalm 63, he says this, Oh God, you are my God. I earnestly seek you. My soul, listen to these words, my soul thirst for you. My flesh, it faints for you. You know, as I read those words, I start examining my own life. Man, when was the last time I cried out to God in that way? When was the last time that I had that my soul was that thirsty for God, that my that my flesh, my body was that weak 
that I longed for him that much. And yet that's what King David said. And that's what Paul's saying here, that he has this deep longing for fellowship with God, with fellowship with Jesus. But here's the problem. I think some of us have gotten so uncomfortable with this idea of an all-consuming passion for Christ. Like, we tend to want to dial it back a little bit. Like, don't like don't get too crazy. Like, you can raise your hands, but raise them about here. Like, don't go all in. Just like here. Or, I'm going to talk a little bit about Jesus with my neighbors, but I'm not going to go all in. I'm going to kind of let them figure it out for themselves. Or, I'm going to just kind of halfway get there. No, what does he say? Listen, I want an all-consuming passion to know Jesus. And so what we do is we take Scripture, like, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul longs for you. And we take verses like that and we put them on a t-shirt with a cute little deer and a little stream running through. And we put them on a coffee mug with a cute little deer and a little stream running through. But you've got to understand, when David said those words, he's in pain. He's in anguish. He's saying, God, my soul longs for you like a deer that has been out in the wilderness for days on its last leg getting ready to die i am panting for you listen let's not make this yearning and longing for god some cute thing that we can put on shirts but let's make it our heart's desire that we would have that type of fellowship with christ that our hearts and our souls would long for Him and yearn for Him like no one could ever imagine. You see, Paul, Paul also knows that the more he knows Christ, the more he walks in fellowship with Christ, is the more of Christ's power that he receives. That same power, he says, that resurrection power. I want to know the power of of your resurrection. That's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's the same power that enables us to overcome sin. That's the same power that, cre- that makes us holy. Not because of ourselves, but because of His righteousness. Because it's His power, not our own power. He says, I want to know that power. I want to experience that power. And then He says, I want to share in His sufferings. Now, we don't like that part, do we? Like, I want to share in his blessings, not in his sufferings. But here's what happens. When you and I share in his sufferings, if we suffer for Christ, it enhances our fellowship with Christ. Because suffering and sorrow and pain always enhances fellowship. It's true in our relationship with Jesus, and it's true in our relationships with others. If you've gone through a difficult time, whether it's been, if you've faced cancer with your spouse, if you've faced illness or sickness or hardship with someone else, it creates a bond that is so deep and so intimate and so real. And Paul is saying, listen, I want to share that intimately, that deeply, that real with Christ. I remember back in 1994, I was on a summer mission trip in Lake Tahoe, California, and we were, we were doing missions work in Lake Tahoe, suffering for Jesus, because, you know, 
Somebody had to do it. And so as part of being in Lake Tahoe, we had the opportunity to go and experience the beauty of God's creation uh, out west. And so I remember one day we were on a hike with a group. I was probably about 14, 15 of us were on a hike. And um, one of our friends, a guy named Johnny Wilhelm, he was a uh, junior at uh, University of Michigan. And Johnny slipped on some rocks and fell hundreds of feet, tumbled down to the bottom of this trail, this canyon. Thankfully, he survived. They had to, he had to be air-vacked out of the, the woods and into the hospital. And the nearest trauma center was Reno, Nevada, so he had to go there. And um, he, he uh, literally spent the entire summer there. Um, never fully recovered, had too much brain damage. He lived the rest of his life in, in, uh, you know, paralyzed and, and in pain. And, 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 but yet, we walked in that suffering with him and his family. And there was a bond that was created with that small group of college students that is unbreakable. We're all still friends. We all still communicate a lot. We, as a matter of fact, I could probably call anybody on that entire team and say, hey, I'm in, I'm in need. And they would run to the rescue. Why? Because sorrow and suffering enhances fellowship and community. Paul says, I want to know Jesus through my suffering. I want to know him through and in my suffering. But then there's another thing he says. He says, not only do I want to have fellowship with him, but listen, this, this last, the fifth one, this last point is this. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, don't misunderstand that verse. He's not doubting his salvation here. He's not doubting that if, you know, maybe God, maybe I'll make it or not, you know, if by any means. But what he's saying is, listen, he's saying, God, I don't care how you do it. I don't care if you go all Old Testament and just sweep me up like you did Elijah. I don't care. I don't care if I die here in this prison as a martyr. I don't care if you release me to go plant hundreds of more churches. But that one day I'm anticipating, I am longing for, I can't wait for that one day where I get to meet you face to face in glory. So Paul is, is, is longing for, anticipating that glory we have in Christ. What I love about this is that's the last thing that Paul mentions in this entire list of benefits of walking with Jesus, of knowing Jesus, of being his disciple. The last thing he talks about is the eternity piece. See, often, so often, I know we talk about, that's the first thing we talk about. Well, I just want to get, I want to be a follower of Jesus so I can go to heaven. But what Paul is saying, listen, right now, right now, here, today, you can know Christ. Right now, here today, you are in Christ. Right now, here today, you've been given the righteousness of Christ. You can have fellowship with Christ. And then when you spend eternity worshiping Christ, you will be all prepared and long for that day. That's what Paul is talking about here. He's saying, listen, I long for that day. Paul wrote this passage. Really to, to show us that everything in life Everything that this life has to offer is worthless 
compared to knowing Jesus. It's worthless. Every bit of it. And he wrote this passage to drive us into this deeper walk with God in Christ. This deeper intimacy with Jesus. And and so the question is, what stirs you to have that passion for Christ? And we're all stirred in different ways, right? Every single one of us, there's different things that stir us into deeper walks with Jesus. And that's okay. Nothing's nothing's going to all, we're not going to all be stirred in the same way. I think there's certain elements that are the same. I think uh, Scripture's a part of it. However you engage in Scripture, you need to engage in Scripture. And that means just reading God's Word, because the when we read God's Word, that's the way God speaks to us. I think there's, there's prayer. It's going to be an aspect of it. Some form or fashion of prayer. Talking to God. That's the way we talk to Him. We hear from Him through His Word. He speaks to us. We speak to Him through prayer. There's this aspect of worship. And not just singing songs, but, but our whole lives being an act of worship in everything we do. But then you have to discover what, personally way, what, what personal ways you connect with Christ. You get to know Him more. Like for me, it's early in the mornings. Like if I get up early before our house starts stirring and things start moving, if I do that and just spend you know, those first moments with Christ, that sets my whole day in motion. For others, you're better if you end your day with Christ. And that's okay. I'm not here to say you need to go and have to do it at 6 o'clock in the morning. Not at all. Some of you, but you're better, your time's better. I've talked to many people that their time is better at lunch. Like they use their lunch break at work as an opportunity just to connect with Christ. Like for me in the fall when it's no longer 97 degrees with a, when it feels like 182, I love to build a fire in our fire pit in our backyard and sit out there and watch the embers and watch the smoke rise. It's always a fun time to hang out as a family, but really I love just being able to Think and ponder the things of God while that happens. Some of you, it's going to the mountains or to the beach or to the lake or wherever it is, just figure out where you can know Christ more. Walk in fellowship with Him. Resting in Him and realizing your righteousness comes from Him. So that, so that our prayer could be like, the, the, like King David's where he said, one thing I have asked of you, Lord, one thing that I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever, all the days of my life, and I may gaze upon your beauty. That I may gaze upon your beauty. May that be our prayer, that we would have that type of intimacy with Christ, that we would gaze upon him in deep, intimate fellowship and relationship with him. So Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you so much for... This word that you've given us, and it's such an encouraging word that Paul gives that, Lord, it's not about our strength, it's not about our own doing, our own yearning, our own driving, but it's all about Jesus. It's all about his righteousness being given to us. It's all about being in him. It's about knowing him, walking in fellowship with him. And so, Father, for those that are listening in here that have never placed their faith in Christ, they've never met Jesus like Paul did on that road to Damascus, Father, I pray that today would be the day that they say, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord. Not just the Lord, not just our Lord, but I want you to be my Lord. 
Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they enter into that relationship with Christ like they've never experienced before. And we do so through faith. And Father, for those of us who are Christ followers, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to walk in the truths that we've learned today. That we would see the value of what it means to walk with Jesus. And how everything else in life, all those things that we chase, all those things that we go after, are simply worthless compared to knowing Christ. So may Christ be in our credit column. It's in his name we pray. Amen.